Welcome back to the Cutting Exchange by Medtronic. Right. And so when we talk about techniques, you know, one of the controversial issues was also the use of radial artery, Mark, and, and in coronary bypass surgery. Uh, pretty remarkable, you know, in a, a mostly dominated cardiology guideline committee. Um, what what do you, is, is radial artery? How would you describe that as why that was so controversial in these guidelines? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I would start first by saying, if patients don't come to cabbage, they won't get the benefit of it. And we are two levels of separation away from providing them the benefit of a second arteriograph, whether that second arteriograph is a radial artery or a right internal thoracic artery. Uh, the community, as you said, is quite divided right now as to whether the radial should have received a class one recommendation. I have a personal opinion on this. Uh, I don't frankly disagree with the class one indication. Class two A may have been very defensible as well. I think it's really depending on how you look at the evidence. Overall, the trials, as you know, were small of the radial artery, but they were very elegantly and competently put together with achieving more than 1,000 pool patients. Now, the other argument is that many of those patients, uh, actually all of those patients were from non-US centers, but I'm not sure that's a criterion to accept medical evidence in 2022, whether your patients have to be randomized within the US. It's desirable, but I don't think that's an absolute criterion by any means, right? Uh, so whether it's two-way or class one, I think there's more evidence. I think everyone would agree that there's more evidence supporting a benefit for the radial artery than the right internal th thoracic artery, especially randomized evidence. I don't believe any observational evidence here. This is like giving a ROS procedure versus a tissue valve uh, to a well-functioning patient uh, who's 35 years old for the first versus an endocarditis patient who we know won't even be able to manage Coumadin for the second. This confounding medication at the source. We don't give multiple arteriographs to people who come in uh, in a very, very dire circumstance or with an EF of 25%, even though many of those factors are accounted for in so-called registry or observational studies. You can never remove bias at inception. So I think from a randomized evidence point of view, we have more evidence supporting the radio than the RETA. Not that the RETA is not uh, also deserving of a, recommend, a positive recommendation, but I'm sorry, the R trial was neutral and some would argue negative at 10 years, right? There were probably more early complications. So we have to consider that in mind. So I know I'm perhaps divisive here, not everyone agrees. Uh, and I think it really depends, as coming back to Joel's point, as to what you're an expert with, right? If you can do a, a RETA really nicely, and this is part of your current common practice, usual practice, then I think it's wonderful. I want a surgeon who does exactly that. Right. And, and was there anything about off-pump versus on-pump surgery, uh, Mark, that you found remarkable there? Or Again, you, you know, the, the easy answer here is, as I tell our trainees, is if you can do exactly the same operation without stopping the heart, without putting ice on the heart, I'm exaggerating, but it's, it's going to be a darn good thing to not have to do any of this. You know, occasionally patients will have effects from cardiopulmonary bypass. And occasionally you'll have patients who need cabbage, but who cannot necessarily withstand the, those ill effects. So off pump in my book, I'm a bit biased, but it's a lifesaver. I never go on pump to do coronary bypass graft. It's just the way it is. And, and you don't even think of it, whether the ejection fraction is 12% or 62%, it becomes a way of doing it. But that 
cannot be imposed on necessarily every surgeon or every center. As you said before, it's a multi-team approach. You need strong cardiac anesthesia. Cardiac anesthesia will send you on pump very quickly if they're not experts, right? So it's a whole culture team approach and both are probably equally good. The last thing I will say is there's probably nothing biologically wrong with off-pump bypass surgery. We, we have a lot of data supporting that, that the patency can be as high, especially if you use that and, and other modalities. So I personally, um, I'm a big fan of it. Great, thank you. So actually, what when I hear you talking, you know, and and um, and then we question for Milan is that it's so important, you know, how guidelines are created, and and we know that one of the major differences between the European and the American guidelines is that in in the United States is the American Society of Cardiology with the AHA, and they invite surgeons to be part of the committee. Well, in Europe, it's the European Society of Cardiology and the European Association for Cardiothoracic Surgery that made them um, together. I uh, would say, you know, and and can that influence a guideline? It, it should be based on, Absol on absolutely, absolutely, Peter. Uh, thanks, thanks for raising this point. You know, in 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 Europe, and we are always talking about the development of clinical practice guidelines and uh, the the pillars of making them, and that's are the definition raised by the Institute of Medicine, which is actually the the organization in the United States. So one of the first pillars of it there is to have the multidisciplinary balanced group of people who are developing the clinical practice guidelines. So if you have a group of people who toward or who practiced one specialty in, in uh, more members of one specialty, then another one, you toward the guidelines of professional bias. So uh, that's the first pillar that needs to be followed in Europe. Uh, so far, we have success to follow that pillar. We always try to have one third of the cardiac surgeon, the task force, one third of the clinical cardiologist, and one third of the interventional cardiologist. In that case, we can ensure that we have the balanced multidisciplinary approach during the guideline development. In, in the US, that's that's totally different story because they usually the ACC and the HA, they are the main driver of the guideline development and then the WATS, the SDS champion, and the very last moment to endorse the guidelines. I think that that makes a big difference at the end also in the providing the treatment recommendations. Right. And, and so maybe, maybe Joe, it is quite remarkable. Um, I mean, I think in the past, there were also guidelines coming from the surgical societies in the USA a long time ago. Um, has this created another kind of discussion between the cardiology societies and the surgical societies that, hey, next time we should do it differently? You know, absolutely, Peter. You know, the most important thing here is, is, is really the patient, right? And to make sure that the patient gets the best care. And the only way that's going to happen is when cardiologists and surgeons come together and work together in a, in a fair and just manner. And so I think that, you know, we need to come together and we need to work together. And I think we can learn a lot, uh, you know, from our European colleagues. I mean, some of the things that we are advocating for is, again, equal representation of surgeons and cardiologists on the writing committee. We're also advocating for uh, people who are non-experts in the field to be part of the committee. You know, and these people are experts in interpreting studies. You know, to make sure that we don't over or under-interpret studies in, in writing the guidelines. You know, we also think that there should be more time for review and input by the different societies, as well as we believe there should be time for public comment. 
you know, these guidelines should be made public prior to they becoming, you know, maybe policy or, or, or published, you know, understanding that everyone has an uh, important input here. So we do want to work together with our cardiologists. We know it's the most important thing, but we do believe there's opportunity to improve the process. Right. And how guidelines are used in clinical practice might also be a little bit different um, in the U.S. versus Europe. So, Joe, can you, um, you know, discuss a little bit about how guidelines influence clinical practice in the daily daily work of the surgeon cardiologist? You know, that's interesting because you know when you when you talk to experienced cardiologists or experienced surgeons, I hate to say it, but I don't think they have as much impact. But where they really do have impact is with our learners, our residents, our fellows. Like when the guidelines came out in December, I remember some of the cardiology fellows just said, geez, it's interesting. We don't need to send patients with multi-vessel disease to surgery anymore. You know, and, and because they are influenced. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's just that they haven't had the experience to see the benefit of surgery and, and, and what can be done. And so that's what makes me nervous about these guidelines. You know, they're being talked about. Um, in a lot of grand rounds, in a lot of educational conferences, and they will have impact. I think the other thing to think about is when we talk about guidelines, we then go to the appropriateness, right? So is it going to be appropriate to, to take somebody who has triple vessel disease, um, proximal LED involvement, and treat them medically now? And are insurance companies going to think twice about yeah. paying for cabbage in that situation? Um, this affects a lot of patients and could have, you know, really bad consequences for our patients. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about the, the payers. Of course, they would yeah. like to see this kind of follow those guidelines because they say, hey, that is probably cheaper, you know, to, to, to give just medical treatment instead of a revascularization. Yeah. I haven't thought about it. So, so Milan, yeah, um, absolutely. in Europe, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, I just want to add that the guidelines are not only tools for the decision making among clinicians, but also they are used by the policymakers and the payers. <laughs> that, and we need to be aware of it and the consequences of making such a strong recommendation for, for, for the future direction of treatment. Yeah. So, so when you look at uh, the guidelines now, is, is there still a lack of evidence that we need? Uh, we need more evidence for, for let's say, the next guidelines committee, um, which trial, which study would you th think, hey, this would really help us, you know, steer the discussion in the right direction? Um, Milan, any, any idea that you would have a study that you think would impact the guidelines next time? Uh, you mean in the, in the stable coronary artery disease? Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually, at, at, at this point, I don't, I don't see the trial we can, we can run it just in order to influence the future guidelines. I think that, that we failed uh, with Excel trial and with the Noble trial, I think it would be much better if we had a larger sample sizes in both trials with, uh, with uh, uh, more emphasis on the, the heart clinical events such as mortality and, and the stroke over there. And uh, especially to, to some kind avoid the controversies about the perioperative myocardial infarction. But the, the now we have uh, the IPD-MEA of four trials that, that is very helpful for, for decision-making uh, for, for any kind of the committee who are making the clinical practice guidelines. We have FAME-3 trial, which results are clear. And I think 
so far is the, is the firm decision that you will send a patient with a multivessel disease to cabbage rather than to PCI. So yeah, I I need to think about that. It's of course it's it's easy just to say that you you that we we need to run a study in some field, but we need to be aware that this study costs a lot, so we need a lot of logistics. So the spending on our, our resources on the on the on the clinical question that cannot help us too much to to drive the future direction in treatment decision making. It's it's not helpful for anyone. So yeah. I think, no. yeah, I need to think about that twice yeah. before I no, say. Yeah, and ischemia, yeah. I mean, one thing we can do, we can congratulate the, the the people in the ischemia trial because it was not an easy study. I mean, it, it took a long time to enroll patients. Um, you know, the funding, of course, is not that easy then. And, yeah. and, and this was really about medical management versus revascularization. So do you think it's likely that another study will happen in the near future, Joe? Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question, Peter. You know, one thing I think we all have to remember is there's always bias in studies, right? When we think about a randomized study, the bias occurs on who's entered into the study. And when we think about ischemia, it took much longer to do, and I don't know if they enrolled all the patients they want to do. So what is the ultimate, you know, randomized study would be to randomize different revascularization techniques versus medical therapy in patients with stable ischemic heart disease. You know, one, is it going to happen? I think it's pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. You know, two, if it did happen, how valuable will it be? You know, and, and that really comes down to the question of equipoise. I know there's a lot of people who believe that patients do benefit from bypass surgery, and the patients that are going to be enrolled are going to be the patients that patients uh, that are their, their practitioners, their physicians, question whether there's any value in them. And, and again, sometimes, you know, you get the answer you want just by who you enroll. So th- those, are, those are difficult questions. I think the more important question that we may need to think about is what studies are we going to include when we write the guidelines? And that might be a way to start off, which might, you know, prevent some of the controversy around these guidelines. Are we going to include um, older studies that have been included before, if there's no study that undermines or, or says that that is not, uh, no longer correct? Are we only gonna include randomized studies? Is there value including registry studies? You know, I think when you write guidelines, it's also important to consider the, the practice that is occurring you know, in the real world. And I think we could do a better job of including that type of, of evidence as well. So. That to me may be a starting point as opposed to deciding, do we need a new study? Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's a difficult question that you raise, uh, Joe, and maybe Milan can comment on it. So you have one, you have a cohort study, you know, you have followed patients for, that underwent coronary bypass surgery and, and you have great results. And now you have a randomized study, uh, you know, let's say take ischemia, which by itself, the study design is not that easy to interpret because you have PCI, you have cabbage and you have medical management. So how do it's you weigh? It was non-anatomic, right? It was. No, exactly. Yeah. And and how do you weigh then the evidence between a cohort study and a randomized trial, which 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 by itself the design was controversial? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a challenging, and and that's one of the reasons why we need to have the multidisciplinary team approach when we are making the clinical uh, practice guidelines. So that means that we need to have over there the expert in biostatistics. 
the clinical epidemiology, who can who can go into the more details of each of these studies that can really influence decision making, and then come up with some kind of the uh, joint answer um, about the quality of some particular studies. So I, I need to say that we did an exercise uh, for our heart disease guidelines in Europe together with our colleagues from the ESC. And it was, it was not easy to come up with uh, the similar judgment about uh, the quality of the studies, uh, especially about uh, some particular study, but the, at the end we made it. So I think uh, uh, the, the, the first question, the most important question about the clinical practice guidelines is to how to set up the good process of making them. So, if we are if we are clearly follow, for example, the old Institute of Medicine pillars, uh, I think that then it's very easy. So they we we literally have uh, the the statements which drive us through the entire process from the development of the task force members about the management of the conflict of interest. And at the end, about the, the voting of recommendations. The, the another thing that I found extremely challenging in the in the U.S. guidelines is about how the, they vote on recommendations, and they have the the voting rules of fifty plus one percent at the end. People who are able to vote on the recommendations. So if you don't have the the uh, the equal distribution of the task force member within the group, then just the majority yeah. can vote the recommendation at the end. And th there is no way that you can influence the, the, the final statement. And in Europe, it's at this moment, it's a little bit different bef uh, because before we start developing the guidelines with our uh, colleagues from, from cardiology, we set up the rules. And usually we have the, the, the voting threshold of 75%, which means that if one of the group within the task force is not satisfied with the recommendation, then the, this, this recommendation cannot be voted at the end. So we need so, to sounds come like up with the Euro some, uh, Yeah, sounds like the European Union, where, where if there's no <laughs> real... <laughs> <laughs> majority it, than this yeah it is it is I, I i need to say it's 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 sometimes it's endless story it's, yeah exactly it takes a lot You're of smart. time and efforts but after the six months or one year of discussion at the end we may we, we reach our our common goal and that's to have a, the statement that we are standing behind together and maybe then, um, you know, we're coming to the end of this discussion, but maybe a very simplistic uh, way of putting it, uh, Joe, is that, uh, well, you know, if we cannot decide, why not do a combined approach? Why not do um, PCI and coronary bypass surgery, Lima to the LAD and PCI to the other vessels? Well, again, I, I, I think you're bringing up again, we have multiple options to treat patients, right? We can tailor our operations to what's best for our patient, you know, you know, taking into account their coronary anatomy, taking into account their comorbidity so we can get the best results. And so I think that has to be part of a part of the discussion as well. I mean, we have lots of things that we can do, um, you know, to move revascularization forward. And it really revolves, as you're talking about, is working together. That's the key. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, absolutely. great. Well, thank you both very, very much. I mean, that that's the... Well, the best you. sentence, you know, to end this discussion, this podcast is, uh, you know, work together. And, and if cardiologists okay. and surgeons sit together around the table, at the end of the day, as Milan said, you know, they will come to an agreement and, uh, and provide yeah. guidelines. 
which as as we also concluded here are actually important for for fellows for residents but also for a lot of you know surgical cardiologists that don't have always the time to study all the the the, the manuscripts that come out here and they they want to read guidelines to help them in their in their practice so uh, well, you you help them a lot i'm sure with this this discussion any anything last thing milan you want to add yeah, well, to, to add that we should not just work together to make the guidelines, but also the, the heart team, each hospitals, it's super important because it's, it's, it's the same as in the guideline committee. They came up together and uh, they tried to make the best possible solution for the, for the treatment of that particular patient. So That's we absolutely. need to work together. Yeah. Great. Thank you both very much, and uh, Dr. Mark Ruel, Dr. Joe Sebik, and uh, Dr. Mila Milosevic for this uh, podcast. And um, hope to maybe see you in the next podcast when there's the European guidelines come out. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to your preferred platform. You can also get more info about today's podcast and upcoming shows at medtronic.com slash cardiacexchange. Thanks for listening.